Welcome to Opto Sessions, where we interview the brightest minds from the stock market, uncovering their secrets to success. If you're looking for ideas, tips and techniques from the world's best, you're in the right place. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Opto Sessions. I'm your host today, Ed Gotham, and I have the pleasure of introducing Andrew Thrasher. Andrew Thrasher is the Portfolio Manager for the Financial Enhancement Group, an Indiana-based asset management firm. He's also the founder of Thrasher Analytics, a research and analysis service for financial advisors and investment institutions. We dig into the current market downturn, what to expect moving forward, and also touch on the US election, as well as going into sector rotation strategies, risk management, and planning for retirement. Enjoy. Hi, Andrew. How's everything going? Going well. Going well, getting ready to start this week off. Yeah, it's been a um, very interesting week last week. Um, obviously, there's been some major moves in the, in the market, particularly uh, below key levels. What people have been talking about recently is about market breadth. And I thought if we could just potentially start there and, and get your, your uh, opinion on why it's important uh, and how you monitor sort of breadth in the market. I think breadth is extremely important. Um, we always have to remember, we often talk about and what gets reported in the media is whatever the Dow did or what the S&P did or what, whatever the index is, how they perform. But we have to remember the stock market truly is a market of individual stocks. And so by understanding what those individual stocks are doing, are they rising with the market, with the indices, or are they going down with the indices? Are they diverging? Whatever the majority of them are doing is going to end up having an impact on the overall indices. So I very heavily watch what breadth is doing. Uh, but we start seeing uptrends in the broad market, but then we start seeing less stocks going up, which can be measured through stocks above their maybe intermediate moving averages, like a 50-day or longer-term moving average, like the 200-day, or, or purely just the, the number of stocks making maybe new highs or three-week highs or three-month highs or however you want to slice and dice it, um, be able to evaluate how healthy is the internals of the market. Um, and typically before major downturns, we start seeing, seeing kind of destruction internally where less stocks are being supportive of the overall market trend. Um, and I've, I break up, to kind of say it further, whenever we see market downturns, I break it into kind of two different types of, of corrections. We either have sentiment driven corrections, which I think is kind of what we're seeing right now to where sentiment gets very, very frothy. Everyone gets very bullish. You pretty much have everyone on, on one side of the proverbial teeter-totter, and that just needs a reset. Those types of corrections often are very swift, very severe, but don't, they aren't 2007 type corrections. They're not dot com explosions where there's, you're seeing 30% drawdowns. They're typically 10% drawdowns. Um, whereas you have breadth driven drawdowns, which is where you have less participation by the individual stocks, those are much more protracted. We saw that earlier this year in March. It was very much tied to the coronavirus, but going into the coronavirus in March, we really were seeing a breakdown in individual stock participation, and those types of drawdowns can be much more severe. It can last a lot longer. Um, so I think when we do see drawdowns in the market, it's important to see, is this being driven by sentiment, or is this being driven by weakness internally of the market? Sure. And sorry, so what, what would you consider what we're going through now then? This is more of a sharp, swift correction. Is that what you're implying? Or? 
Yeah, I, I think this is more sentiment driven. We a lot of the sentiment surveys were very, very high. Um, the National Association of Individual Investment Managers um, does a survey every week of active managers, and they basically all were were calling for a long bias. We're all net long, looking at some of the futures data, uh, very, very high ninety plus percent readings and um, and sentiment, and then also volatility, which I'm sure we'll get to later. So volatility started. Was, had gotten very, very low and started consolidating. Um, and when we get that compression and volatility, uh, that's often a, a great barometer of very frothy sentiment from an option standpoint. Um, and and the VIX and that compression is something that I spend a lot of time on. I won an award, the Charles Dow Award for my paper on, on that topic. Um, so I'm sure we talk about that more later. But yeah, I think this was much more sentiment driven. Um, internally, we still had a lot of stocks that were in uptrends. A lot of stocks were still above their their moving averages. Um, and so we can obviously see sentiment, a sentiment correction turn into one of, of a breadth type correction. But I think we started out right now. This was, was driven by kind of a resetting of sentiment. And how are you monitoring uh, market breadth? Are you just keeping track of the key uh, sort of sector... Um, trackers? Is that the sort of thing you're doing? So I look at it from a lot of different angles. Um, primarily, I, I really like looking at the number of stocks above moving averages. Um, one easy one is just the number of stock, percentage of stocks above a 50-day moving average. And then is that trending higher or lower? Okay, um, okay. It's not something that earlier this year when we kind of came out of March, we got a, above 90%. And then once we weren't able to get to that threshold, a lot of people were calling for divergence. I don't think we often need to see continue to make new highs, but we need to see a lot of stocks still holding above that key moving average. If, if we have at least 60, 70%, that's still a good, a good reading. But look at that, I look at when the market's making new highs, when we started seeing the S&P hitting fresh 52-week highs, how many of the stocks were doing the same thing? Um, I want to see I want to see the individual stocks trying to replicate what the market's doing and yep. seeing that list expand, not contract. Yeah. Okay. And into this sort of the highs that we saw recently before this the downturn, would you you'd say um, the breadth was pretty low? There was only a few stocks that were do, doing the sort of all time highs. Is that fair to say? Or? I think that the the big differentiator is the the Fang stocks, the Facebook, Amazon's, Apple's, Microsoft, Google's. The, that index they were the main drivers, I think, of the performance. But just because they were the strongest stocks doesn't necessarily mean they were the only stocks going up. Yeah. Um, we still had a fairly healthy level of participation. Um, it had broken down a little bit, but not nearly like we've seen before some of the more major corrections, like in 2018, uh, before fourth quarter of 18, or or March of this year. Um, so I would still think that the breadth was fairly happy. Yeah. Um, when you look longer term, like the percentage of stocks above like the 200 day, it was still very, very high. And so I think it was much more, like I said, driven by sentiment than by a really breakdown in breadth. Yeah, we had a, only a, a few stocks were the main drivers um, and they equate to more than a quarter of the S&P at this point because they've been so strong. But I think that also relates again to sentiment that we had such high sentiment um, for these few few names to the point where their owners were making or losing billions of dollars every day yeah. based on what their stock was doing. I mean, that just kind of reads to the, to the sentiment of the market that, that we got to that level of, um, of bullishness. Yeah. And now we're starting to see that, that get reset. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's interesting times. Um, it is. Can you give us a, a quick overview of, of what you do now and, and, and how you got to where you're today? Just a, a brief one, just, just to introduce people to yourself. Sure. So my, my day job is I'm a portfolio manager for a, a financial advisory firm called Financial Enhancement Group. We work um, act as financial advisors and money managers for primarily high net worth individuals and families. 
Um, so my, my job is to manage those assets. Um, our advisors build these relationships with different families. And then myself and, and Adam Harder, we are the ones that then manage and are investing, investing those assets on their behalf. Um, so my day all day long is, is analyzing the market, looking for opportunities, doing trades within accounts, um, and then just other some some back office type paperwork that that gets revolved around uh, of doing trading. Yeah. Uh, but my main function is really managing those assets. Um, I also run a service called Thrasher Analytics. Uh, it's a newsletter primarily for institutional, um, although some individual traders also read it. Um, but it's my weekly thoughts on the market um, from a, a broader standpoint, from the sectors, the market, to volatility. Um, but I write that as well. But my my main focus is is really being a, a portfolio manager. Sure. And I think it's fair to say you're sort of a technical analysis specialist. Um, what, what led you into that area of, you know, specializing in that area? Sure. So I went to college and got a degree in financial planning. Um, and so we took classes on investing through that process, but everything was really driven towards a more value fundamental focus on the market. Um, looking for companies with deep moats, think of a Warren Buffett-esque investment approach. And so when I started in the industry, that was really kind of the only way I knew about investing. And so you'd read Benjamin Graham, you're reading these key tombs of investment writing. And it just, it seemed really complicated. I really, my, my brain always went to a quantitative way to, to look at the market. I wanted to take kind of this value approach and how do I quantitatively look at the market through that lens. And it was really difficult for me to do. It wasn't, it was more squishy, trying to find companies that were undervalued. What did that even mean? Um, and so I started just doing more research and learning about price action. And I realized that when you're buying a security, you're not buying it based off what you think it's worth. At the end of the day, it's what the market thinks it's worth. Uh, when you get monthly statements um, from TD Ameritrade, E-Trade, Fidelity, whoever you're, the custodian is, they're not printing the values based off discounted cash flow. They're based, the values of your portfolio are based off what the market says that, that stock or ETF or, or whatever the investment is, is worth. And so that's what kind of got me down the path of, of trying to get closer to the market, which was really price. And then that led to technical analysis and then studying to earn my uh, chartered market technician designation. And the rest is, uh, I guess, history. Um, and if we take it back to um, the, uh, the markets today, again, just because it's a very interesting time to sort of discuss them. I just want to get your, your insight into the, um, the major, indice, major US indices at the moment. Uh, a lot of the world's sort of watching these as, as just indicators of where the market's going. And we've obviously, like we talked about, seen some pretty major sort of uh, price movements down recently. What, what levels are you looking at at the moment? Like what, what's, how are you playing? Um, what's, you know, setting up for yourself in the market, you know, based on where we're at? Sure. Coming into this, this latest downturn, something that struck out to me was, so we have the S&P 500. That gets the most attention. Um, that's the large cap index. We also have S&P 400 and S&P 600. That's the mid cap and small cap indexes. Um, before we really started seeing the markets turn lower for large caps, the mid and small caps, they, they broke below their, their, June, their prior June highs. They never even made it back to the February highs. Um, but they were starting to, they were actually seeing not just relative weakness. It wasn't just that small caps and mid caps were underperforming large caps. It was, they were on an absolute basis starting to turn lower. They weren't able to, to retain those uptrends. And so we're starting to see that, that breakdown in the market. Um, and then we saw the large caps, the S&P 500, it broke back below its February, February high. That was a significant market move, in my opinion. We had this major breakout. We recovered the destruction caused from the, the coronavirus crash in March. 
equities rallied, um, and then we failed to hold that level. So that was kind of the first chip in the the bullish the bull argument. And now we've continued to see um, the markets weaken. And then on Friday last week, we saw the S and P break below its fifty day moving average. Um, and that was, that was, again, another significant, this level had been support on um, prior turns lower since March. Um, the 50-day, it always kind of had, had held up. Um, buyers were able to kind of come back in and start buying that dip. So the fact that we closed them below it Friday, we saw it was um, options expiration, triple witching week. Um, and then there were just a, too much selling that came in, forced us down below there. So where do I think we can go from here? I think it's very possible we could see a test of the 200-day moving average. That's right around... Uh, 30, let's see, where's 200, about 3,100 on the S&P is where the 200 day is right now. I think that that's very possible. We're seeing some, some early market weakness when we're recording this today on Monday. Um, and so I think I try to keep an open mind where I don't set an expectation to say, okay, this is where I, the market has to go. But um, typically when we do see these sentiment type resets that we're talking about earlier, seeing a test the 200 day is, is pretty common. Um, looking again at the other major index being the NASDAQ, the NASDAQ 100. Mm-hmm. Um, typically, we, we see that it's still about 15% above its 200-day moving average. It got really, really extended. Um, and so typically, when we see the market get that stretched, um, seeing it kind of come back and, and, re- and reset at the 200-day level is, is pretty common. Um, I don't think that's a, a bull market ender or it's going to be the destruction or end of the world. It's normal to see markets correct. You yeah, see yeah. that you get these, these tests, maybe a hold, maybe that's what brings buyers back in and we can rally into the year end. I don't know. I, I keep an open mind to that. That's a possibility. Um, but I, I think the 200 day is probably the next major for both the NASDAQ and the S&P, the next major kind of line in the sand um, on the downside. On the upside, we need to recover that February high. In the S&P 500, um, patience can be uh, extreme virtue and not trying to get caught up in kind of the whipsawing to where until we can really get back above that February level, kind of the 3,400-ish area, 3,420, um, and really hold it, that's from, to, get, to get really more bullish for me, I need to see that level recovered. True. And do you think there's any chance of it, like any sort of prolonged sideways action between like, a, you know, some sort of range? whilst this coronavirus going on, et cetera, is that also a possibility? I think it's a possibility, but the, the one caveat that I think detracts from the idea of us seeing a range bound market is one volatility stayed, stayed persistently high. The market's expecting us to not have kind of a solemn, boring snooze fest of a market. Volatility staying very elevated. Skew is staying very elevated. We're still continuing to see an interest in deep out of the money options, which is what SKU is going to evaluate. It's sitting near uh, multi-year highs. So the market's expecting higher levels of volatility. We also have a lot of catalysts that are going to keep um, stocks kind of pretty jumpy. We've got, like you said, the, the coronavirus vaccine headlines that seem to come out every couple of days. We've got the U.S. election. Um, Brexit's always popping back up. The issues with, with China. I mean, we have a lot of, of headline-driven market action. Don't throw in, throw in Powell, who's speaking three times this week. So we have a lot of headlines that I think is keeping the market from just having that sanguine, just sideways consolidation. Ideally, that would be great to see the market consolidate, um, prepare itself for the next leg higher. I would love to see that. Yeah. Um, I just don't think we, we're kind of in the environment in 2020 to see a sideways market yeah. uh, as much as we'd love just to have some boring price action for okay. once. And um, 
Moving on, yeah, so that, that sort of relates to sort of volatility, like you, just, you sort of touched on it earlier. We obviously, like you mentioned, had uh, triple witching on, on Friday, um, which happens four times a year. L large options activity, obviously, expiry dates, which can cause volatility in the markets, and it's, you know, it sort of did. Um, and how do you approach these sort of periods of high volatility? You actually mentioned before some of your analysis, you see correlation between downturns in the market and periods of high volatility where SP 500s at or near or like one year highs. Why do you think that happens and, and how should people approach that? So I think when, whenever we have triple witching or really options expiration in general, the way I approach those times periods is knowing that on options expiration, we're going to see an increase in volume. There can be an increase in volatility. And I try to, um, to make less decisions on those days. Um, and when I analyzing the market after the fact, realizing that this was an important market event for the, the, inner, the inner structure of the market um, is kind of clearing the pipes with, with options as we shift to the next month. Um, so I try not to, I try to take those price action days a little bit with a, a grain of salt, uh, unless we're seeing a major break, kind of like we did on Friday where we closed below the 50 day. Um, but typically, specifically for options expiration in, in September, the week after, the week we're in this, this week, has historically been very bearish. Um, Wayne Wiley wrote, uh, did, did an excellent study looking at this week over the last 30 years. It's been up six times and down 24. Um, so looking at the, the seasonality of, of kind of coming out of September option expiration is not great. So volatility, answering your question about when volatility starts rising, um, I did a, did a study and wrote about in my Thrash Analytics letter that typically when the market's at a one-year high and if the VIX is roughly 25% off its own one month low. So meaning you have volatility rising, you have equities rising, hitting fresh highs, things feel great, everyone's a winner. It gets really tough for the market to sustain that kind of pattern. Uh, when volatility is advancing, that's telling you something. That's telling you the market's expecting um, an increase in volatility. That doesn't actually mean to the downside, VIX is, is non-directional. So when VIX is higher, it means the market's just gonna have larger, is expecting larger swings, potentially in both directions. But typically, when we get more volatility, it's to the downside. And so what I found is when volatility starts rising with the market, it's preceded January 2018, preceded the March downturn here most recently. We've seen these, these periods to where the market, market began to struggle to go higher. And we're now seeing that play out again yeah. to where volatility began to rise along with the market. And VIX was who kind of won out that battle as equities now correct. Yep. And on a, on a sector basis, um, how are things looking at the moment? What, what do you think? Uh, are there some that are, you know, showing strength at the moment? Which ones are poised for better returns when, when the market sort of, some, whenever it does, like turn around and start going higher? Uh, I'm not in love with, really with any of the sectors. Um, probably to speak broadly, I have a decent bit of exposure to technology. Uh, but more on an individual name basis, can't get into those individual names. But I think it's really, the, the past couple of weeks have really set up, I think, for a great stock pickers type market. Um, we've seen decisive winners and losers um, and some, some great opportunities in some of the less popular names, which as a portfolio manager provides me with opportunity. Um, from a, the, the sectors that I do think look okay, um, tech is really pulling back. I think utilities or anything that's interest rate sensitive doesn't look great. Utilities have, have yet to be able to really break out. Real estate doesn't look great. Materials has, has done well. Um, it's, it's, held, it's held on to its, its strength. Um, and there's been a lot of attention garnered from materials and industrials. 
Um, here in the U.S., we've seen a lot of, of strength in building. New home sales have done really well. Lumber prices skyrocketed from, from demand there and, and kind of a, a bottlenecking in supply. Um, the issue there is when you take your sector, your sector look and say, okay, we're seeing sector rotation. Let's say we're seeing rotation from technology to materials. That's great. The thing is, materials make up 2.2% of the S&P 500. That's not nearly enough of, of a rotation to say, okay, well, the bulls will just sit in material stocks and the market will keep going higher. Yeah. Tech is 24% of the market. So when you see a rotation from technology to materials from a sector that's almost a quarter of the market to one that's 2%, that's not enough of a rotation on a sector weighting basis to sustain a market uptrend. So right now, I think materials, industrials, they're, the, they're held up the best last week. Um, but we're so overweight from a, from a weighting of the S&P standpoint in tech and like consumer discretionary, uh, which I think, I think consumer discretionary also looks pretty, pretty decent still. Um, healthcare is, is kind of broken down. But the, the biggest weighting sectors, they're the ones that have kind of had the biggest pullback because they were the strongest ones going forward. Um, so even if you like certain sectors, they may do well relative to the market um, or on an absolute basis. But I don't think it's enough to really sustain the, the uptrend in stocks just because a couple material names or a couple uh, industrial names move higher. Sure. Would you say it's fair to say that tech is, the tech set is so important now is, you know, people, everyone should be watching that as an indicator of direction of the overall market. Is, is it pulling the market in the direction whichever it moves? Oh, very, very much so. I mean, like I said, technology right now is 20, 24% of the S&P 500. Um, just those five stocks, those bang stocks, replacing Netflix with, with Microsoft, just those names alone have such a large weighting um, that they, it used to be said that it's the tail wagging the dog. I think it's more now they've become the dog. Uh, yeah. Whatever those stocks do, the market responds. If Apple's down, for instance, if, if just on a day that Apple moves, it can be determined what the market's going to do itself just because it's such a large weighting. Um, that's not necessarily a, a bullish or bearish argument against those stocks. It just shows the, the, the severity of their moves on the market. And you have to recognize that to ignore what those stocks are doing and just assume because um, real estate's doing well, that's not, that's not enough. These names control the market right now. Apple did, a, and part of, a, I think, kind of the resetting we're seeing is we had the, the stock splits in Apple and Tesla, and now you have Apple's less of a weighting in Dow. And so it's, it's, it's going to have a less of an impact on the Dow stocks. But I still think the sentiment towards these names um, got very, very high. And so really watching, I, I built and, and watching equally weighting of the, the FANG stocks, and it started to break down ahead of the market last week. And I was, I was tweeting about that on, on social media, that the FANG names were we're making new lows and that was kind of calling for the S&P to do the same thing. And that's what we saw last week. It was, it was Friday. We saw that lower low because the market's pretty much chasing these, these bang names. Uh, I think the bullish argument there is if, if the selling that we're seeing right now stays there, just stays in these five mega cap names, and maybe we can get some strength in some other parts of the market, then maybe that will keep the, the sell-off muted. But if the selling does start to bleed over to the rest of the market, we start seeing equal weighted indexes begin to break down, um, less interest in small cap stocks, and we start seeing some of the, like I said, the, the selling bleed over to the rest of the market, then that could kind of continue to light the fire for sellers and we start seeing an expansion of, of selling um, and, and, more, and lower prices in, in the market. Um, but right now, it really seems like they're, they're, they're 
keeping their sights set on those mega cap names. Yep. And these uh, tech companies, the, the, the sort of valuations we're seeing nowadays are sort of are, are arguably hugely decoupled from any sort of form of, you know, traditional uh, valuation metrics. Um, Howard Lindzen recently said that valuations don't matter in 2020. What's your point of view on this? Um, I'll start with that I don't look at valuations for, for how I evaluate the market. Um, to that point, it, it's not that I, I don't look at it. It's just it's not something I ever really use. I think Howard's, how, I have a ton of respect for Howard and think he's very, very smart. And I don't disagree with him here. I think part of the reason that we've seen this huge expansion in tech is because they're a little bit more immune to kind of the, they didn't have to shut down their restaurant during the lockdowns. They didn't have the, a disruption to kind of selling their products. Look at Amazon has been hiring tens and hundreds of thousands of employees because yeah. that's kind of where all the demands going to these tech stocks. You're not going to stop using Facebook. You're not going to um, turn off your, your iPhone because you're on lockdown. So these stocks kind of disproportionately were able to benefit from kind of the disruption we had this year more so than some of the other companies uh, in other sectors. Um, so from a valuation standpoint, they're the only ones that, um, to, a, to some degree, we're able, we're able to make money over the last six months or at least turn a profit on it. Uh, when you look at the kind of Q2, Q, um, the Q2 earnings, they've made it the lion's share of, of net, uh, net income for the large cap, sec, for the large cap market. Um, so from a valuation standpoint, no. I think the issue people get caught up with looking at valuation, if it's something you, you do want to pay attention to, is valuations can always go higher. If saying yeah. something's overvalued, it can be more overvalued. It's just the market's perception of what they feel like it's, it's valued at right now. So I think if people are, are, are making entire decisions purely based off of a discounted cash flow analysis or a PE ratio, um, the market has taught this lesson numerous times that that alone um, can always get more expensive. Yeah. And um, someone else that's going to be really interesting coming up soon is obviously the US election. How do you think people should position themselves, you know, for such a big event? And also, like, longer term, is it all noise? Does it matter who, who wins or loses? So what's a short and lo longer term sort of impact, you know? Uh, I'll, gi I'll give you my answer. You probably won't like yeah. it. No, you should, not, you should not position for the election. Um, we do get this question because we do work with our clients. They're, they know the election's coming. Um, they, they know how contentious it's likely to be. But... Um, and asking should should they be moving to cash? Should they be should we we get out of the market because of, of the election? Just wait for for kind of the calm to settle. And we've seen time and time again with elections that the expectation is not always what the market delivers. When we had Obama get elected and, and took office in, in 2009, there was this expectation that it was going to be this so we're elected a socialist. He's going to destroy the economy. Um, he's 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 not a, he's not a fan of Wall Street. And what did we see the market do? The market had an incredible rally for, for basically his, his tenure as president. Then we elected Donald Trump in the US. He doesn't know what he's gonna do. People are freaked out. We saw the, the, the futures market responded going limit down on election night. And then what do we see? The market was able to respond um, the next couple of months and it was able to continue to rally. So regardless if it's a Republican or Democrat, I think we need to be more focused on looking at the market itself than trying to look at these events and trying to flip a coin with how will the market respond. Um, it, it could be it go either way in the first week after the election. Um, thankfully, that's not what we're investing for. We're not investing for just that week. We're investing longer term. Um, and so, yeah, we are 
we have kind of a playbook set for, for corners of the market that we think will do well um, with under each administration based off what they're saying. Um, for instance, Biden has been very, very hard on, much more focused on healthcare. Um, and so kind of looking at maybe there's going to be some pockets of healthcare that will do well and that, that won't do well. Um, Trump is much more for deregulation. So financial stocks may do better under that. Um, and so there's different, there's different areas where um, we think each candidate may benefit certain parts of the market, but from a mac from a large macro standpoint, no, we're not making portfolio bets or decisions just because we have an election coming up. Yep, that's fair. Um, and even on a trading basis, is there any sort of like do you just sort of de-risk for that period? So just so do not have you know is that is that a fair approach to it? Yeah. So we so something that I'm I'm constantly watching is our beta. Uh, I want to watch the beta of the portfolio. So just how much market risk are we taking to the to the overall market? And so we'll we'll lower beta um, coming into this downturn uh, with lower beta just for for that reason, just because we thought we thought from a sentiment perspective things looked really really frothy. And so it's uh, when I tell our advisors, we tell our clients, it's less about how much you own of something versus what you own. Um, when you own a stock that has a beta of five and it's whipsawing all over the place like a toddler eating a bunch of candy, um, that investment is much different than maybe a stock that slowly grinds maybe as a high dividend stock that doesn't really have a lot of connection to the market and is much less volatile. And so even though those are both equity allocations, you could, you could own 5% of each of them, they're going to act much different and they're going to provide much different risk profiles for a portfolio. And so we really, that's our, our focus is less how much equity exposure do we have, but the equity exposure that we do have, how much beta, how much risk do we feel those positions provide us and then manage that part of the portfolio. Um, so yeah, I think going to the election, we're not going to move to cash, so to speak, but we'll, we'll manage beta uh, within the portfolio and kind of evaluate how the market's acting going into that event. Um, it won't be a kind of a closed eyed approaching uh, and saying, okay, because it's election, we're going to do this, but we're going to see how is the market or is it very jittery? Is volatility staying high going to the election? Okay. Then maybe we need to be, uh, have that taken into account for our, our risk management. Um, but very much at the end of the day, it's, it's market driven, not news driven. Yep. Okay. And in terms of the dollar, um, are you keeping a close eye on that? And do you think that's going to be affected by the results of the election? Um, we do somewhat watch the dollar. The, we watch the dollar more from a standpoint on when we take international exposure, um, if we need to kind of have that be dollar hedged or not. There's different ETFs that are unhedged or hedged. So we'll look at the dollar from that standpoint. We don't make direct currency plays very often. Um, sometimes we, we will through ETFs, but very rarely are we making currency uh, allocations. So yeah, I, I do think that there, there could be some implications for, from the election on, on the dollar. Again, I, thankfully, I don't need to be an expert in that. I just wait for the market to show me what is starting to strengthen the dollar. Uh, because the, what we have to keep in mind is the, when we're looking at currencies, it's a, it's, a, it's a pair. So it's the dollar to what? It's the dollar to yen, the dollar to the euro. We have to evaluate what's the euro doing as well. What's the yen doing as well? Um, we'll look at currencies from like the Aussie, like the carry trades, looking at the, the Aussie dollar in New Zealand and kind of see how those are doing or look at the yen for different carry trades. Um, it's, it's kind of a Forex risk barometer. Um, but when you're looking at Forex, I think you, you definitely often gets overlooked. You have to look at what's it being paired to. So you can look at this, the dollar index, which is the average. Um, but I think more insight can come from 
the individual currency pairs and how is it, what's the euro doing? Um, when we saw the, the dollar get really strong, is it because one currency is, is getting really weak or is it just because all of them are getting weak to the dollar and kind of really evaluating it on, a, on an individual basis, just like we look at the market, the individual level of participation of individual stocks, you can do the same thing with currencies. And is it the dollar is going up or down because it's strong or is it going up or down because a bunch of other currencies are, are in opposite trends? And I mean, globally, do you primarily, are you just interested in US or do you have some exposure to you know, emerging markets or, or other sort of major um, international economies? Well, I've never been more over more exposed to international than domestic. We're always going to, we always have a, a bias towards domestic markets. Uh, if we do take international exposure, which we do uh, quite, quite often, it'll be through ETFs. So we'll use ETFs as a way to gain that exposure. Um, our portfolios are, are built on ETF and individual stocks. So we don't use mutual funds and we don't use, um, we don't have futures or options within the portfolios for clients. Um, so yeah, if we, if we think China looks attractive, then we'll use maybe a Chinese ETF um, to, to gain that exposure, Latin America or, or what have you. Um, but it's, it's not a permanent part of the portfolio. Sure. And that globally, is there any, anywhere that is looking interesting outside the States at the moment? Um, not really. Um, I, right now, we're, we're very minimally allocated toward, toward the international we had some, some Chinese individual equities, uh, but we managed those very, very tight stops there just because of some of the kind of the news risk. And it's, it's, there's so much focus right now on, on kind of our relationship with China. Um, we've seen kind of what's going on with TikTok and WeChat and, and we're starting to ban companies and people. Yeah, yeah. So you have, you have to recognize those risks are there when, when investing internationally. Um, so right now we're, we're primarily, um, primarily domestic focus right now. We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show. If we could now sort of start talking about your portfolio management, trading strategy, etc. Starting with, you know, what's your market strategy of how you, how you sort of allocate capital in a nutshell? Sure. So we manage several different portfolios, um, different models for clients. The, my main focus is called our, our tactical edge model. Um, it's a little bit shorter term. Um, we, as a firm, focus a lot on, on tax management and doing tax strategies with clients. So this, this portfolio is less focused on that. It's more risk-focused, um, capital appreciation-focused. And so the way I approach that model, and that's kind of the main what takes up most of my time is kind of more of a, of a, at the same time, a tops down and a bottoms up approach. And I'll explain what that means. So from a bottoms up looking for individual stocks, there's different, um, we, I break that into two different types of uh, kind of search, search criteria, so to speak. So one is looking for divergences, meaning stocks that have come down a lot and maybe we're starting to see, I, I think could, could revert higher. Um, so maybe momentum is starting to rise or is, is not down as, much, even though the price is lower. So looking for mean reversion opportunities. And then the other one is looking for breakout opportunities, stocks that are trending higher that I think will continue to trend higher. And the reason that I, I put these, these two categories are part of this, the, the model is the, the market often rewards one or the other at different times. So if, if we're really in a strong trending market, maybe those breakout, those breakout type plays will do really well um, as strength begets more strength. Um, there's other times where 
we start seeing the markets, um, maybe we're trading in a sideways range or just we don't have a real clear uh, trend direction and then maybe mean reversion type plays work out better. And so by looking for both of those at the same time, it means I don't have to be right in place my bets all on one or the other. Um, there's times where I have more allocated towards maybe trending stocks than, than mean reverting stocks, which is actually the case right now. But, I, but the, the, the model has kind of earmarked allocations for both of those types of investments. So that's kind of the bottoms up approach looking, regardless of what the market's doing, looking for opportunities and stocks that are, are breaking out or stocks that we believe are going to mean revert and move higher. Um, the, the other part is more of a tops down. So looking at the market risk um, and how much equity exposure do we want to have um, just to the to general market. Um, or maybe there's certain corners of the market, whether it's a, uh, a uniquely built actively managed ETF or maybe certain sectors we want to be overweight in. Um, and then we'll, we'll allocate towards those, but it's more of a, a kind of a tops down approach. Um, we'll really want to kind of set our sails for our ship, so to speak, on, on which direction the market's trending. And then the third uh, portion of the portfolio is kind of an alternatives. Um, so we can own different maybe um, commodity ETFs, or maybe we want to have different uh, cryptocurrency exposure there or volatility exposure there. Um, so anything that's really not your, your basic equity fixed income allocation, we have kind of an alternative sleeve and that helps provide some diversification, um, provide a little, yeah, just a, essentially diversification of the portfolio, regardless of what the, the U.S. Equity, um, equity market's doing. Yeah. Okay, sure. And um, you said one of your, um, well, I've seen one of your specialties is like sort of sector rotation strategies. In your words, what, what are sector rotations and, and sort of why do they happen? Yeah, so we use sector rotation um, diligently every month in our other models that are a little bit more passive. Um, and so it's a, an entirely quantitative process um, that we run at this, the, the end of each month to tell us which sectors we think should be um, considered overweights. And so what uh, the way I built that model is to it, 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 looking at the idea of trying the best way to describe it um, without getting too complicated. The, so the markets typically do have a sense of momentum. So the stocks that are sectors that do well continue to do well over various look back periods. The caveat there is when something does too well, it's gone up too much. Let's think of like tech right now. Um, then it has a, it can get to the point where the rubber band, the proverbial rubber band, is too stretched and needs to revert. So our sector rotation model looks for to look at the continuation of momentum, that the sectors that do well should continue to do well, um, but we've built in a volatility component, a momentum component um, that will negatively impact a score of a sector if we feel like it's gotten too stretched. Um, and there's there's been a lot of written on this type of topic. The way I do it is something I think is, is pretty unique. Won't get too far into what that is, um, but we, we try to combine uh, kind of a momentum approach um, along with um, a little bit of mean reversion if a sector is getting too extended and we have a pretty unique way of evaluating that. Um, but we do, we do believe in having some type of systematic approach to sector rotation. It's regardless of what I think of it, the individual sectors, um, it's entirely systematic. Yeah, okay, sure. Um, and how long do these sector rotations typically last um, when they do happen? It can be, it can vary. Um, so we, we do a reevaluation every month um, when we get our new sector scores um, and we own a certain percentage of them at one time. And so it's, some of them have been the ones that some of them could, could persist for, for several months or six months if they continue to, to receive the top scores. Um, there's other times where we're constantly every month rotating in and out of, of new sectors. 
And so we don't really set it kind of an expectation of as of September 1st, we're going to be in this XYZ sector for an X period of time. It's going to be in the, in the portfolio till we do the next evaluation on October 1st. And maybe it will be the same sectors. Maybe it won't be, but um, because it, it really kind of depends on, on the different market dynamics um, and what, what the price action has been. If it's a very fast market, maybe they, we see some, a lot more rotation, um, but it really, really depends. I don't kind of set an expectation to where this sector should stay in the model for three months or what have you. Yeah. Okay. And in terms of risk management, um, obviously you're holding a portfolio of different stocks. Do you use uh, diversification to reduce risk? And if so, how, I, I know you've just, you know, discussed that you like technology like quite, quite a lot. Um, how do you make sure it's slightly diversified? So, you know, to minimize risk or do you not employ a strategy to do that? So the, the diversification that I look for is not diversification of assets, but diversification of process. The reason being when you see, so diversification, the goal of diversification is to protect on the downside. It's to protect when the market turns lower, you're diversified and have assets that maybe shouldn't go down as much as the market, or maybe X part of the portfolio would do well when B part of the portfolio is not. The issue with that, and we saw it in March, and we see it all the time, is when the market turns lower, sharply lower, that correlation, which is what often people are trying to diversify, the different correlations of the portfolio, correlation goes to one, meaning that the, the stock that maybe uh, was a little bit what you thought was less risky than the market, all of a sudden starts moving exactly with the market. And your whole portfolio is now being controlled by, um, because it's all, the correlations totally broke down um, and, and everything's being sold, thrown out with the bathwater, so to speak. So rather than look at correlation to find diversification, um, which is what a lot of investors do, what, what I look for is looking at process diversification. So I described earlier that I have different sleeves of the portfolio, different ways that, that, that decisions are made, and that's how we diversify. So when we're looking like the individual equity portion, if we're looking for mean reversion stocks, um, that process looks entirely different than the process we're looking for trending stocks or momentum type stocks. And so if the market starts rewarding one, one sleeve more than the other, that's the diversification we're looking for. And so by having diversified processes, it's less reliant on what the market's doing and more understanding that these processes have different inputs and produce different results. And maybe ideally they will perform better than others at different parts of the market cycle, but it's less reliant on what the market itself is doing. And that's the type of diversification we want to look for because that's the type of diversification we can control. You can't control correlation. It's dynamic. You can't control beta. It's dynamic. Um, and so that's really hard for, for a manager to do, um, even though that's the popular way to do it in academia. And we see a lot of papers written about and efficient market hypothesis and, and all that gobbledygook. Um, but in, in practice, it really has, uh, has, has left a lot of people um, wanting. Yeah. And it, when trading, um, lots of people talk about having a sort of a per risk amount per trade, a percentage of your portfolio. Um, how do you approach overall risk uh, in the portfolio if you have multiple trades open? Is there a total amount you sort of um, allocate? Or? Yeah, so we'll start with a kind of um, a baseline allocation, uh, like if we're talking individual equities, um, where it's a pretty small starter position was what we'll call it, um, based off kind of the perceived risk of that, that investment. So if it's a stock that has very, that's very volatile, um, that can be, that's often in the news a lot, 
that may be um, interested, it's, it's a little bit harder to manage. Maybe there's not clear cut support resistance levels on the chart. Uh, maybe we'll have a smaller allocation to those types of stocks, whereas the risk reward going into maybe a, a new investment, maybe it's a lot stronger. Uh, it's a less volatile security. So we feel comfortable taking on a larger weighting there. Um, and then we'll build positions from there. So if we start a position, let's say at 2%, um, and it's, it's acting well, we want to continue to buy that strength. Um, we reward, so to speak, the stocks that are doing what we want them to do. They're going higher. So we'll add to that position. Um, I'm much less of a fan of buying stocks that are not doing what I want them to do. Um, it kind of goes back to the value mindset of if you love the stock at 100, you'll love it even more at 80. Well, no, that's the market telling you you're wrong. That's the market telling you that when you loved it at 100, you were wrong. It went to 80. That's okay. Uh, it's, it's not a bad thing to, to be wrong, but don't reward that stock in most cases um, for telling you that you're wrong. So I, I like to reward good behavior, not bad behavior. So I'm much more inclined to, uh, to add to winning positions, not losing positions. True. And that makes, makes a lot of sense. <laughs> um, in terms of the, you, you touched on but you, you, a lot of your uh, sort of portfolio management uh, or side of it is to, is to do with planning for retirement. Um, at the firm you work for. Um, how do portfolio strategies change over time as in individuals move closer to retirement? How does that sort of work? Yeah, so our advisors meet regularly with our clients. And so what they're doing is, is creating financial goals with those clients. So maybe one, one family's goal is to be able to um, pass money to a foundation that they've worked a lot with, or maybe give it to a school that they went to or to a child or what have you. Or, or it's, most of the time it's planning for retirement. And so it's, they want to make sure they have um, enough resources when they retire or they're actually in retirement already to, be able to provide income for while they're in retirement. And so by setting these goals, it's much less, you'll notice I didn't say anything about they want to do better or worse in the market. That's, a, that's a, an irrelevant goal. Our clients, you're, you're not rewarded from outperforming the market by 10%. Um, what you are rewarded for is, is trying to meet your actual expectations and your goals. So our advisors use that when they meet with clients, say, okay, here's what your journey, your financial journey is going to look like to meet these, these goals, these expectations. Here's what I think we need to, we need to have this much risk within your allocation uh, to be able to achieve that type of goal. And um, so we'll say if it's, if somebody's very conservative, they have shorter term focus, maybe for these, this money, maybe it's money has been set aside to, to pay for a grandchild's college education in two years. Well, maybe we don't want to take on too much equity risk there. So we put it in one of our more conservative models, conservative portfolios, that's more geared towards fixed income, so to speak, or a little bit less equity exposure. Um, so that our advisors are constantly having these meetings, evaluating what's the purpose of this money and how much risk, how, how much is the focus more on appreciation? Do we need to help grow it? Or is it more in preservation? We want to protect it um, in the sense that it's, it's not so much we need to grow it, we need to make sure it persists, it lasts, it preserves itself for a long period of time. Uh, maybe it's money that uh, that they, they need in a shorter period of time. So our advisors are doing those conversations um, and then they're selecting the, the models to put those clients in. And then myself and, and Adam, um, we then are, are then managing those portfolios based off the uh, kind of the risk profiles of those clients. Sure. And is it possible, um, so sort of later in life, um, when you're looking to reduce risk, is it still possible to look for some sort of, sort of growth? without taking too much uh, risk on board to, you know, risk 
significant drops in your account, which you can't afford at that stage? Yeah, so I, I think it's, we're always trying to manage, we manage risk first in everything we do. Um, and so, like I said earlier, we, we take a focus on taxes as well. Um, we don't want to be generated. If it's a, a regular individual account, we don't want to be throwing off a ton of short-term gains because um, those are overly tax advantageous here in the U.S., um, at the same time, if it's an IRA and it doesn't have tax issues on a year basis, then short-term gains are relevant for that, for that type of an account. And so we'll take that into consideration with what type of model to use, um, if it's more short-term focused or long-term focused um, from a tax perspective, but also the, the drawdowns matter. Um, we want to, it's, it's much harder to recover a 50% drawdown. Um, you have to recover 100% to get back to even. And so we definitely take that into consideration with how we manage risk. And we'd rather... Um, protect on the downside and have to give up a little bit of, of upside potential to make that um, that investor's experience uh, a little bit better in the sense that if they have less volatility in their portfolio, there's less emotional response to that. And it's, studies have shown there's going to be more likely to sustain that strategy and to sustain their plan for the future than to have an emotional response saying, get me out, move me to cash, um, there's a lot of people that, that did that in March. Thankfully, our clients weren't, weren't, weren't one of them, um, but a lot of other advisors had their clients emotionally respond to what was taking place. And I think it's because the conversations they were having with their clients were more performance-driven, um, where how are you doing relative to the market, rather than the conversations we have with our clients, which are more goal-oriented. So when our clients call in and are concerned with the market, we are able to, to, to go back and say, remember, we have this plan in place. Here's what our goals are. We're still on track with those goals. Uh, maybe we can make a few tweaks here and there to, so you're, you can sleep better at night, but being more goal-focused makes the conversations and, and chance of having a successful uh, financial future much more obtainable or e much closer, easier to be obtained. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we've seen an explosion in, in sort of interest uh, in the markets, particularly in, the, in the, the younger sort of demographic through the sort of success of Robin Hood, eToro, things like this. But it's, it's still very common, I think, to find people that don't, don't really have an idea about how to approach investing, especially for, you know, for the future sort of thing. How do we get people interested in this from an earlier stage, do you think? Do you have an opinion on that? Um, I, I think part of it, part of that wall, I think, has come down now that we have free trading. Um, so there's less, a lot of the brokerage firms now offer transaction-free um, for trading. I think that helps bring some of it down. So you have less... It's less daunting that I have to spend X amount of dollars to do this this trade. At the same time, it, by making it that easy, it almost makes it more like gambling. Um, I think the first thing we need is more education in school systems. The fact that you're learning esoteric concepts in, in some high schools that are never going to be applicable in the real world, but we're not teaching anything about personal finance. Um, students start getting credit card applications, but don't know anything about debt management. Um, they're taking on maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars in loans for college, but have no idea about uh, what their credit score means. Or they go into their new job and they're, they're told to sign up for a 401k. They have no idea what retirement planning is. And so I think it's important that we really need to educate um, from a high school standpoint, from a high school point, uh, really about personal finance. And some schools are doing this, and I think that's great. Um, but I think learning, learning early on what investing is, what personal finance is, creating a budget would vastly um, be important for so many students and would really help them further down their, their life, um, be able to manage when those, those important topics come to bear. Yep, yep. And uh, you also touched on something very interesting there, um, this concept that, you know, free trading 
has opened up the market, but has also made it potentially more risky for people because it's too easy to buy and, and sell. What do you think are the longer term effects of that? Is that are people going to ever get over that thing, or, or you know, is is that an issue um, where people need to learn basically how to approach things when it's that easy to go in and, in and out of the market? Well, I think we had a, a very unique year this year in the sense that we came into with a lot of the brokerage firms offering zero transaction fees. We then had the March crash, and then it's kind of this, been this environment where it's believed kind of tongue in cheek that stocks only go up. Um, they, they have nowhere else to, gamblers have nowhere else to go when sports stops. So they came to the stock market. Um, we saw an explosion in options transactions um, from, from a retail standpoint. We really saw a lot of gambling because the perceived risk in the market had been taken away, uh, so, they, so they thought, because stocks would only go up. And so I think we're, we're, if we do see a, a protracted downturn here, it'll be an important lesson of whenever it occurs. The market's not going to go up forever. So whenever we do see a protracted market downturn, now that we have all these people that are newly interested in trading um, because of kind of the, the, the strong move off that March low, um, I think they'll, they'll be able to kind of learn, maybe learn some things about risk management. Um, which are important. And some people have to learn those lessons through uh, their own accounts. Some will learn it through reading about other people's accounts uh, and money that's been lost. Um, but I think it's, yeah, we're, we're seeing kind of, as part of the, the built-up in sentiment that we talked about at the start of the, of the, the, the show um, was from a retail standpoint. They were seeing either themselves or their neighbors making a lot of money buying calls on electric vehicle makers uh, and quitting their jobs as dentists to trade full time. I mean, that type of those types of anecdotes are out there. I, I hear them from other people, and that's not typically um, a good thing. <laughs> Someone should. We don't want to see your taxi driver pull over to the side of the road so they can uh, close out their their call positions. Um, that that's a little bit fro- a little, little bit of froth in the in the sentiment standpoint. Yeah, yeah. Um. Awesome. And I just want to finish now with um, something cool we call the quick fire round. Uh, it's just six questions. Um, Going to ask them and, and just, you know, not, not looking for a long answer, just whatever comes to mind, basically. Sure. Favorite book? And this can be investing, non-investing, anything. Okay. Um, the, the books I think that are some of my favorites, the Market Wizard series are excellent. Uh, most recently, The Man Who Solved the Market about Renaissance Technology uh, was, was very, very good. Um, those have been some of my favorite ones. Um, technical analysis, I think, How to Make Money in Stocks by William and Neil uh, was, was very, very useful. Um, those are three probably of uh, some of my more, my more favorites. The, the Market Wizards, the main who saw the market, was fascinating reads, um, and I, I recommend them quite often. Thank you. And um, where or who do you go to for, for market insight, if anyone? Yeah, so there's there's a lot of traders that that I talk with, um, some more than others. Some of my favorites: Dan Russo, J.C. Peretz, um, Thomas Thornton, Ari Wald, um, Joseph Family does great. Brian Shannon, uh, Jim Bianco in Chicago uh, is great with with more economic type stuff. There's a, there's a lot of financial Twitter and social media, and there's, there's a lot of bloggers that do excellent excellent jobs providing insight. Um, and I'm luckily enough to call a lot of them uh, good friends. Perfect. And a top tip for your younger self? Take, take more risks. Uh, I'm a pretty conservative uh, from a risk standpoint, I think just by nature of being a, a portfolio manager. Um, and I would say to maybe uh, push the envelope a little bit more when I was younger. Um, be curious to see what my, how, how life would have turned out if I had. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, favorite charting software? Try, uh, probably Optima. Um, I'm a really big fan of Optima. Optima. A very co- that's a very common one, I find. A lot of people from the podcast say that. Um, favorite place you've traveled and why? Uh, favorite place probably would be Italy. Um, loved, loved Italy. My wife and I were there a couple years ago. Um, I love wine, and so being able to, get to go to Tuscany and, and see, and also Rome and, and seeing the, the Amalfi Coast, just just there's so many beautiful, beautiful places in Italy. Loved Italy. Um, would would move there if that was a realistic op- option, and I could trade the U.S. markets there. Would love to live in Italy for for six months if that was uh, an easy thing to do. Love Italy. And uh, finally, have you got a top prediction for next year? What, where do you think we're going to be at? No, no, <laughs> uh, no, I, no, I, no, I don't. I, I, I really, I truly do. And, I, and it's easy to, say, easy to say no. I truly do try to keep an open mind to it. I think when we, we get um, set an expectation of a price target or an earnings price target, I think that even if, it, if it's done flippantly, um, it does create that mindset where you've put something out there and you get attached to it. Um, so by not having one and trying just to, to be fluid with the market, I think has so many, so many advantages um, so no, I really don't have an expectation uh, going forward. There's, I'd like to see the market go higher. Um, that's always, it's, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a better environment, especially as a portfolio manager to, to, to see appreciation. Uh, but I don't, I don't set that as my expectation. Try to, try to keep an open mind. Sure. And actually something, um, I'm just going to add a question in here because you mentioned something earlier that was quite interesting. You said some of the exposure is in cryptocurrencies. Have you got an idea? What do you think longer term about cryptocurrencies? Are they going to sort of, just generate more more traction or where do you think this is going? I think they're extremely, so I think there's, from a personal standpoint, I think they're extremely interesting. I think there's so much potential we could see come out of cri- the crypto blockchain and they're two different things, but we'll kind of tie them together from, I think there's a lot of potential for blockchain that's going to be used and I, I don't think that's ever going to go away and they'll be adapted um, from healthcare records. There's so many things that could be done through the blockchain um, aside to crypto. Um, I think there's just so many things that, that are interesting about it. Um, from not just from an investment standpoint, just from a global forex, we're starting to see uh, countries are developing their own um, cryptocurrencies. The Fed has come out, the U.S. Fed has come out and said they're planning on coming out with their own cryptocurrency. Um, so I think there's so much potential there. Uh, it's extremely volatile, uh, as we've seen throughout the years. Um, but I just think the, I'm really curious to see in 10 years looking back, what happens in the crypto blockchain space. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I think it's really interesting. Especially there's, there's a lot of new, uh, interesting cryptocurrencies now coming out, new ones that, you know, have different sort of use cases, et cetera. That, you know, it's just going to be quite fascinating how, how the world sort of adapts and starts using, using those. Um, brilliant. Thanks so much, Andrew. That's, that's been such a good hour chat with you. For anyone who wants to find out more about you and, and follow you, where can they go? Yeah, so my, um, my, my main blog is athrasher.com. Um, I write a subscription letter at thrasheranalytics.com. Um, I'm on Twitter quite a bit, at Andrew Thrasher. And then my, my firm's website is yourlifeafterwork.com. That's where I, uh, I manage assets. Amazing. Cheers, Andrew. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest to you. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new podcasts, stock reports, or events from the Opto world. 
If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. Until next time.